At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Uh, hey everybody, it's Paul Shear. I do another podcast called How Did This Get Made? And if you've ever listened to that and want to come see us live, come and join us on the road. We are on our big tour right now. We're going to be in a city near you. Well, why don't you check out the website at hdtgminfo.com. That's hdtgminfo.com. See, we were playing because we're out right now. We're in the middle of the South. We're going to go up to New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Montreal. We're there. Come see us. hdtgminfo.com. It's 1966 and Brandy... You're a dangerous girl. What a dangerous girl you can be. The movie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Uh, we're going to be talking about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Mike Nichols' first film in just a little bit. But first, some feedback uh, as we revisit um, the film that we talked about last week, which of course was Gone with the Wind. Amy, a lot of chatter about Gone with the Wind. I know. I'm realizing I could talk about this movie like for 70,000 years. Yeah. Everybody who listens to the show could talk about this movie for 70,000 years. As someone on the Facebook group actually posted a link to a Roxanne Gay thread that also went on for 70,000 years. This is when Roxanne Gay posted that she was watching Gone with the Wind on the plane, and she was, quote, reminded of how terrible Ashley Wilkes is, just absolute trash, useless, spineless, and it's a whole bunch of thread of people dumping on with the Ashley Wilkes hate, including your wife, June Diane Raphael, who just chimed in to say that, yes, he is the worst. That is amazing. Of course, I know my wife is a big Roxanne Gay fan. Uh, but I also found something really interesting in this Roxanne Gay thread on Twitter. Uh, someone wrote in, and this really hit home with me. It felt like it summed up 
are hours and hours and hours of gazillions of talk about it. And this is in response to people trying to make sense of why Scarlett would like Leslie, even though he's terrible. She says, Gone with the Wind works so well because of everyone's romantization of the wrong thing. Your own blindness and how it creates your misery is the core motif of the book, from Scarlett to Rhett to the South itself. And I think that really is the key of it. Everyone's romanticizing the thing that's wrong for them, the thing that's destructive for them, that that's destructive for the country. I love that. You know, I've kept on reading a bunch of different threads online as well. And this is one that kind of jumped out at me. This is from Ann Foster, and she posted this on our our Twitter uh, page. The discussion of Gone with the Wind on this week's episode of Unspool got me thinking about how Scarlett is a flirtatious but non-sexual, which is why she continues to want Ashley. Rhett provides her with a sexual awakening, but she thinks she wants Ashley's non-threatening blandness. She was brought up depressed. She doesn't understand or want her own sexual urges. Crushing on Ashley is safe and she can control herself. Rhett makes her feel all sorts of ways she didn't want to feel uh, and be a person she doesn't want to be, but that person... She is. And there's layers upon layers to the character, especially in her performance. Um, But I thought that was a really interesting point of view about that attraction to Ashley, because that was something that I definitely derided her for, you know. Um, And I know I got a lot of heat for not understanding Scarlet, but uh, I do. I I, I love Scarlet, and I I love that performance. (laughs) The issue that I have been was wrestling with is I read a couple of things, some feminist theory and about her as well, and I think – it seemed like she was often motivated simply by a man or to get to a man. I think that was the thing that weakened her to me, or that was the thing that I was reacting to when we were talking about it a little bit. Yeah, and I can say, like, I've had crushes that when I mean, my whole childhood, my entire elementary school youth was defined by having crushes on, like, strange, nerdy blonde boys who never were aware that I existed. Oh, wow. So I totally get it. Yeah, and then there were posts um, from JF, for example, who wrote about how we cling to Gone with the Wind because we haven't been given enough Scarlet, so we make apologies for this movie that minimizes the enforced subjugation and enslavement of a whole race of people. Uh, JF actually compares Scarlet to a character like Al Swearingen, which I thought really hit home because I love Al Swearingen too, and said that, you know, herself, she's been kind of wrestling with her love for this movie. And I thought she wrote so eloquently about it. I thought Annabelle Foster also did. And I was thinking, I've been kind of kicking myself ever since we did this episode. You know, I wish I would have said another reason that people have given for why filmmakers of this period made a lot of films that romanticize the South in ways that we really dislike and find completely uncomfortable now is because a lot of these filmmakers really weren't personally involved at all in the Civil War. People like David O. Selznick, Mm -hmm. his parents were from Lithuania. They got here way after the Civil War. And for better and mostly worse, he just saw the Civil War as a good story. Right. He doesn't have a side in it. Like, when I think about it, I think about my family's legacy, and it's like, ah. Hello, Deer Hunter. I mean, like, here's, again, you know, stories of war told by people who were not there. Not that you have to be there, but maybe have a different point of view about what the war was or how it would tell a good story. Exactly. I mean, like, David O. Selznick had never even visited the South before the premiere of Gone with the Wind, which I think also relates to how Gone with the Wind opens with you know, I, th- I think a really toxic card where it yeah. says that this is the land of cavaliers and cotton fields and that gallantry took its last bow here and it calls them knights and their ladies fair. And, you know, I I wish I would have said kind of up at the front, what's really interesting about that is, A, Margaret Mitchell didn't write that and Margaret right. Mitchell hated that. And it was written by the screenwriter Ben Hecht, who made a big deal of bragging to everybody that he never even read the book. So right. this title card that sets up the film in a really, I find, awful way 
is written by somebody who didn't know the source book. But then again, it's also approved by this guy, David Oselznik, who loved the book. And, you know, I feel like the more you talk about Gone with the Wind, the more complicated it gets, which is maybe why as a critic, I love it so much is just because it's intellectually interesting. Mm. Oh, anyway. But look, it, it it brings up a lot of responses. And I think, you know, the response to this film was very divided. And I think that that's a great place to be. You know, it's there wasn't just one side of it. Um, I did want to bring up uh, one little funny thing, uh, just a weird kind of Gone with the Wind fact. There's an episode of The Cosby Show where Rudy gets her period for the first time, and it ends with Claire and Rudy watching the film, and that's how the episode of The Cosby Show ends. So this is just a little weird, fun fact of The Cosby Show. <laughs> Do they talk about it at all? I don't know. Somebody just tweeted that, and I was like, what, a, what an odd an odd uh, plot point. Are they saying her childhood is gone with the period? I, I, I mean, I I feel like that's like kind of the ham-fisted thing that they're doing. Like she's finally becoming an adult, you know? Amy, so last week we asked everybody to come up with a cocktail that could be uh, something that would accompany them on their journey to, uh, to George and Martha's house. Uh, so let's take a listen to what are some of the cocktails that people concocted for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Combine an ounce of George Dickel Tennessee whiskey with four ounces of lemonade, half ounces of peach schnapps and Tim's, a little bit of lime juice, and you got yourself a Dickel Tickle. Quart of vodka and your partner's tears or saline solution and call it happy anniversary. My cocktail is Sailor Jerry Rum and Diet Dr. Pepper Cherry. Doesn't sound good, but it's amazing. I got a drink for you. It's called the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and it's 50% Goldschlager and 50% river water. My drink would be the Pabst Blue Ribbon Pig, which is a Pabst beer with a slice of bacon and a shot of whiskey. The what a dump. Just take all your liquor and dump it into a glass. I like those cocktails. You are more than welcome to send us cocktails. Uh, put them in a glass and send them to us uh, with ice. And, and also send us casserole recipes because I yes. realize I slandered casseroles. Yeah, people did Having not like not, that. I've never really had casseroles. All so right. right. I've never had you've them. You've never had a casserole. Not Amy. really. I, wow, you're from Texas and you've never had a casserole? It, casseroles aren't a Texas thing, no, are I just they? think that they, and they're, I mean, like a Frito, Frito pie is like a casserole. Is a Frito pie a casserole? Yeah. Okay. Ish. Ish? Okay. I, I mean, I love a Frito <laughs> pie. I don't know. Um, <laughs> all right, Amy, let's get into it. The year is 1966. A gallon of gas costs 32 cents. The average price of a new car is $2,650. And the average price for a new home is $14,000. CBS shows their first animated special, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Pampers launches the first disposable diaper. Kevlar is invented by the American scientist Stephanie Kolek. Vietnam protests ramp up in 66 with sit-ins and demonstrations all over the world. Uh, students initiate the draft deferment test as a way to convince the draft board that some youth would serve the nation better in the quiet of the classrooms rather than in the jungles of Vietnam. Muhammad Ali declares himself a conscientious objector and refuses to go to war. And the cool toys out in the stores are Creepy Crawlers, CNC, and Twister. The hot musical acts include The Beatles, The Beach Boys, and The Rolling Stones. Popular movies are A Man for All Seasons, Thunderball, Dr. Zhivago, and today's pick, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It ranks number 67 on the 2007 AFI film list, and it never made it on the original 1997 list. Oh, really? Interesting, right? Oh. Amy, who's in it 
What's it about? Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It is based on the award-lauded play by Edward Albee that was out, I think, in 1962. So this came out five years later. It's the first film by Mike Nichols, later doing The Graduate, and it stars the couple of that moment, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, who had met in Cleopatra, scandalized the world by both leaving their spouses for each other and become... I mean, if we thought Brangelina was a big deal, this is like Brangelina, but scandalous. Brangelina, but like if the U.S. government had serious conversations about revoking their passports because they were embarrassing the country, scandalous. That's how big they were. And then they made this movie about a marital couple arguing all the time and then inviting two young people into their home, played by George Siegel and Sandy Dennis. And it's basically just a movie about arguing in different configurations, about power struggles and manipulation. It is a great date movie. I mean, look, Amy, I would say at the end of the day, this is a movie about love. And I'm not saying that ironically. I, I think it is a romantic movie on, on, a, on a certain level. So this movie starts at like 2 a.m. after a night of drinking. 2 a.m. is late, no matter where you are, even if you're on the East Coast when bars close at 4 in some areas. like So I think it's like this weird witching hour. In a way, I love that the film's in black and white because it, it almost serves that distinction of night. You see that kind of black and white, uh, you know, day and night idea. Did you just call it witching hour just like instinctively? Yeah. Wow. Because do you know that in the play, when it's divided into acts, the middle section is called, I'm going to screw this up because it's German, but it's Walpurgisnacht, which means the witch's Sabbath. Ooh, I did not know that. Oh, I just knew it as the witch's hour. The witching hour, yeah. But yeah, they start drinking at 9 p.m. We meet them at 2 a.m. We meet them in this faraway shot as George and Martha are toddling along, looking old already and small. They seem sort of fragile, stumbly to their house where we get to establish their relationship. We should maybe even get take a step back here and talk about the sensation that this play was, right? This play is the biggest thing. It, I guess, if to put it in modern day terms, it would be like Hamilton, right? Like it, it's known for what it is. And you're not going to be using the stars that were in the Broadway version. It was like Uta Hagen, I believe, was in the Broadway version. I forget. You can listen to some of it on Spotify. I did. And I listened to it and I was like, oh, I want Burton and Taylor back. Yeah, I mean, like this is a play that people consider unfilmable. Uh, there's language in it. But the idea of simply being caught in this house, I mean, how would you do this as a feature film? What was kind of great about having Mike Nichols be the director here is he knew about the importance of theater and the feeling that you get in that room, but he also understood films. So he was able to kind of bring in these moments to get out of that claustrophobic house uh, in a way that didn't take away from the actual work that it was based on. It kind of complements the work. And you get to see, you know, things from different characters' perspectives throughout the film. So it really becomes a different experience. And I think that's how these two pieces really stand on their own two feet because this is um, a little bit more of a, a well-rounded piece or definitely a more cinematic piece. Yeah, I think that's such a great way of describing it because – Claustrophobic is such a perfect word to describe part of the spell that theater has, that awkwardness of being in a room with two people who are actually fighting, even if you know that it's scripted. Yeah. Of just sitting there and being like, oh, my God, they're breaking plates. 
what's going to happen. You which can see it, their spit coming yeah. out of their mouth, illuminated by the lights. That's your favorite part. Isn't I love it. it. You love it. No, yeah. but it's like there is like this power of theater, and you and you're as a, an audience, and you're watching this play. That's one thing, but then you're also watching like these surrogates of yourself on stage dealing with it as well. It, it's it's the fear that we all have. No one wants to be in a room with a fighting couple. I mean, it's. It's not a good place to be. That sounds kind of fun. <laughs> Sorry. I mean. I, it's fun in this way, I think, to watch it yeah. when you don't have to be there. But it's awkward because I they, mean, re- they we, really are being held hostage. <laughs> we must kind of love it in a way. Like all those times people are live tweeting like, oh, I'm sitting next to this couple on a horrible date. Yeah. We're like, oh, tell me more. But we're enjoying it via Twitter. We're a little bit distanced from it. And, you know, That's I almost true. feel like per- somebody even tweeting about it gives them an outlet to have an audience for it. They're not alone in it. But when you're trapped, they, you know, they're not pulling out their cell phones at any point. I think this opening scene where she comes in and talks about, you know, what line is this from? You know, what what is this? And What a dump. It was the Betty I- Davis picture. What is it? And she's mad at him that he doesn't know for bringing up a thing that she just came out of nowhere, being like, tell me what this is. By the way, do you want to hear the original? Yeah. Yeah, so here's the original. This is What a Dump. It's from a movie called Beyond the Forest with Betty Davis. I got back. How's your foot? Fought. What a dump. What a dump. What a dump. And yet, like, in this early scene, there's this kind of tension of, like, are we supposed to be completely empathizing with this husband played by Richard Burton, who's being badgered so much by his wife, like yelled at all the time, yeah. called a cluck, which I guess is like almost a proto-cuck. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a couple things at play in the beginning. First of all, I just want to mention that Betty Davis was one of the original people considered for this play. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor, when she's doing this, is 32 years old, viewed as one of the most beautiful women in the world, literally just coming off of Cleopatra and doing this next. So if you think about her and Cleopatra and then this, they're right after each other. So heavily done in makeup. She gained weight, you know, 25 pounds, which she was short. So that's a lot on her. And she was excited about it. She was like, oh, finally, don't have to die. Give me some pasta. I mean, she was, this is remarkably on vein. Remarkably. She's eating a chicken wing at the camera aggressively in the first couple of minutes. Like, you think I'm the most beautiful woman on the planet? You've been calling me this since I was 13, basically. 13 is basically yeah. when all of the attention started on her. And and I love watching this interaction because it, it's such a drunk conversation. They're, they're kind of both in different places. He's doing the crossword. She's trying to figure out this thing. They're, you know, he starts to talk about Chicago. It's a perfect conversation. And what I noticed was this is a dense dialogue piece. I mean, in every way. But it doesn't feel labored over. You know, like we talk about these people who are like, oh, there are modern day Shakespeare, but it feels like so written. This doesn't feel written to me, but yet it's like every word is almost, you know, crafted. You know, don't you feel that? Yeah. I mean, I think part of the trick of that, part of the extra layer is that all four of the characters are incredibly drunk and get drunker and drunker Mm -hmm. and drunker. So they have these like brilliant little bits of wordplay, nasty little jabs they get in at each other and they're done in a fog, in a tiny little bit of haze, you know? And it adds this a dimension to their performances that is so special that I joked with you that we should be drinking something yes. as we tape this episode. And I brought something really special. I cannot wait to see what this is. This battered box that you see, yes. I just brought back from my trip to Korea. 
I was in South Korea for the BFAN Film Festival, and one day we went and took a tour of the DMZ. Wow. And when you take the DMZ tour, they bring you to this one gift shop that's right by Tunnel 3, where like mm-hmm. the South Koreans discovered the North Koreans building this massive tunnel to like invade. They built right. four of them. And they have a gift shop there. Of course. And the gift shop is completely fucking bizarre. But one thing that they sell in the gift shop is one of the only things made by North Korea that they actually allow for sale. They allow three things for sale. A bottle of honey, which I bought. A bottle of strawberry wine, which I bought. And this, a bottle of Pektusan Gandorma liquor, which they say is uh, their version of whiskey. But it has, I don't know, a picture of a mushroom on the front. Yeah, and it's a very lightly colored whiskey. It almost looks like whiskey watered down. Now, it, this is true that it's all in irradiated barrels. That's how they age this, right? They- <laughs> I mean, it is true that I have yet to open this, and this is going to be the moment All right, of truth. here we go. Here we go. Ooh, it smells, wow. It smells like rubbing alcohol straight up. <laughs> like, but, el- but with a tinge of fruit flavor, we're going to pass this off to uh, Devin and Josh, uh, producer, our engineer, and uh, let's see how right. this goes Should down. Should we say, what a dump? Yeah, yeah. What <laughs> a, a dump. Hmm. Watery and peanutty, right? Huh. Or something? Oh, yeah, it is peanutty. Yeah. It could be worse. It's not as strong as the the smell indicates. Yeah. This is like you grabbed a bottle that when you stayed up late one night with your friends and you watered down all your parents' liquor, like this is what you'll be tasting <laughs> at the party. Like, hmm. But there's definitely a burn. I definitely feel it going oh, yeah. all the way down. Yeah, not as good as our Indiana Jones uh, date whiskey. And this is, you know, for me, I've never seen this film. Uh, I... I'm a big Mike Nichols as a performer fan. Uh, you know how I felt about The Graduate. And here, I, I'm so kind of amazed at what he does. Uh, first of all, we talked about the movies that come out in this year. All color films. I mean, we're talking about, we're in the, the middle of, not the middle, but we're in like a little bit deep in the James Bonds. There are things that are happening. And this movie's in black and white. It's not the last movie made in black and white. No, but it's the most expensive movie made yes. in black and white up until this time. And it's the first rated R movie, you know, it's or without a parent or guardian, like whatever that caveat was given yeah, to. Yeah, they were super worried that like the Catholic Legion of Decency would boycott the film. I mean, so much so that Mike Nichols brought like Monsignors to like a test screening and like really tried to sway them and, and it worked. Monsignor, are you okay with monkey tits? <laughs> I'm sorry, monkey nipples, monkey nipples, pardon me. But it's, it's interesting because I think what people are scared of in this film is the intensity of it. It's an intense thing. And we're just talking about the first seven minutes where you're saying like, you can't let go. It's like you, the roller coaster starts and, and it's like a, it's a roller coaster in the dark because you don't know if you're going up, you're down sideways, upside down. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, I do think the power dynamic that what we see here is mostly her attacking him, him sort of pretending to let it roll off of him, pretending to let it roll off of him, or maybe really really letting it roll off of him. It's hard to kind of tell with him. Like what's so interesting about their couple dynamic is that you sense that Burton is this man who's just repressed all of this anger under the surface and he's just developed this shield, you know, of like whatever Martha, whatever Martha, make fun of Martha, whatever Martha. And it slowly comes out of him towards the end where she's just always erupting from the beginning. And then she kind of, Burns herself out in a way. Yeah. I mean, because I wouldn't say she softens, but she shows a lot of different sides of herself. You know, and I think that's kind of her surprising turn in a way. Yeah. I feel like she's very ready to admit what she's feeling and he 
not always hides what he's feeling or puts it underneath some sarcasm. It's a little Rhett Butler and Scarlet, to be honest. I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't challenge you on that at all. I, I would also say that I think what Mike Nichols does so well as a director, and this is something you can't really accomplish on uh, stage, is he's great at capturing people's reactions. You know, whether a look, it's people listening. I know, you know, he's uh, somebody who's been influenced by like, Fellini and, you know, and just kind of existing on characters' faces. And I think one of the things that he does so well here is he often will veer with a character, even if they're not speaking and we're kind of going with them, I think, to the closet scene where he gets the um, the gun. You know, you're hearing this story that he's heard a million times. And in the play, you're just watching Elizabeth Taylor tell the story about how her father, you know, boxed him and knocked him out. But in the film... That's in the background. He's heard it a million times, and you see on his face this humiliation. And and you you he already knows where the story is going, so he knows what his punchline essentially is going to be. Oh, it, it's it's so powerful. But you get so much from, I mean, from the dialogue, yes, but also from no dialogue. I think you're really right. I think you really see in this film how excited Nichols is to get to control what the audience is looking at for the mm. first time, to really control beyond even just lighting, beyond just spotlights, to say. I'm going to put the camera on this person. I'm going to put this person out of focus or in focus. I'm going to have these people in the frame. I'm not going to have that person in the frame. He's so excited. One of the quotes he said that he was telling journalists before he even made the film, as he was in the build-up to it, as he was in the pre-production and the shooting, is he said, I'm remembering something that Hitchcock is supposed to have said. Every camera shot should convey emotion. Mm. Which I think he really does. Some people think he did it a little too heavy-handed. I really enjoy it. Well, no, you know what I think is so interesting is there's a, they go handheld at certain points in this movie, you know, sometimes, or they do these kind of crazy shots, these, you know, like where, you know, again, going back to the gun scene where you're kind of popping into Elizabeth Taylor's eyes and, you know, the camera almost goes off the rails, like as if the cameraman is part of this party. And I think these moments, these like little blips where it's almost shocking the language of of film. You're like, whoa. And it, it, it pulls you in, in a more intense way. I, I just am kind of amazed at like that choice. And throughout the whole thing, I think Mike Nichols was so careful and knew exactly what he wanted to do that everything is so purposely deliberate. And that's at a 32 year old first time feature director who basically was like, fuck you all. I know what I'm doing get the fuck out of my way. Like, you know, he was like politely, but also he's been known as just being an arrogant dick. Like, I mean, like, and, 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 you know, he says it himself. He's like, I used to be a lot more sure of myself. He's like, as my career's gone on, I've actually gotten less sure of myself, but I, I long for the days where I just wanted to prove a point. Like he talks about this moment where, you know, it's like his first day of shooting and, and uh, the script, he says, you know, Mike, the crew's upset with you because you're, you're moving the camera, you're doing all these different setups that you're not shooting. And he's like, oh, okay. So he goes, that whole night, I just moved the camera and never shot a thing just to prove to the crew that I could do it. Like, and I'm like, wow, that's a first time director on your first week of shooting? Because they shoot all the exteriors wow. of this movie shooting before. Shooting the most famous couple in the world. Yeah, and, 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 but it seems like Mike Nichols doesn't have this issue with them. Like they're not inapproachable. Like they want to be doing this work. They're excited to be doing this work. They have their caveats. Like Elizabeth Taylor has to like have like a two hour lunch break and leave the studio. She, she could take off any two days of the month not to work, you know. Well, she always took off her period. 
her oh, first okay. two days of her period. Her okay. mom told her when she was a little kid, because she was very right. stage mommed, that her stage mom told her, don't get into swimsuits when you're pregnant. Don't be in a pool. Don't act oh, when you're wow. pregnant. You're going to get sick. So she always, she was a huge hypochondriac. Wow. And she was always sick. She was always getting beaten up over something. She had a black eye during part of the making of this film because one of her nephews hit her in the eye with something. Oof. But she was always just getting destroyed. Well, she got her head, and you can see it in the, the film. Her head slammed into that car when they're in the roadhouse. Yeah. And they're outside, like, it's a it's a hit. There's yeah. no stunt there. She fucking takes a lump. And you can also sometimes see her tracheotomy scar. Like, she'd had a tracheotomy uh, during Cleopatra. She almost died before Cleopatra was made. Wow. I mean, she, this woman went to hell and back eight million times. I think but I always I, viewed her as being a very harsh woman, but it seems from everything that Mike Nichols says that she seemed incredibly lovely. She's a nightmare, but she really knew that this movie was special. Here's the interesting thing about Elizabeth Taylor. Like... So Elizabeth Taylor comes to Hollywood and she's, let's see, who'd be a good analogy? Maybe like a Jessica Alba okay, or something like oh, that. Wow. She's put into these sex pot roles when she's really young and she's made to be kind of like the second girl mm-hmm. or like the rival girl or the girl that you shouldn't date. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's National Velvet, of course, but she just becomes so beautiful when she's so young and already under contract that they're like, we kind of don't know what to do with her because she's so hot. And she loves to push up her boobs and she's already really developed and she loved being a flirt. And they're like, we have no idea how to manage this actress at all. She was declared most beautiful, I think, by Hedda Hopper when she was a teenager. And so they were always just sort of flummoxed with her. And then she started getting married at 18 and building up this reputation of being the actress who always got married. And people didn't really take her seriously as an actress for a long time because of the roles that she was put in. And also because I think she didn't put that much of herself into a lot of the performances So her coming out with this role here, especially right after a disaster like Cleopatra, was people being like, oh, my God, have we been missing part of the Elizabeth Taylor this whole time? She had won an Oscar for Butterfield 8. Right. You know, she had done really good work. But this is a moment kind of like Vivian Lee and Scarlett O'Hara where she suddenly has this like. British actor husband who's a genius. Right. And she's got to impress him by any means necessary. And this is how she's going to do it. And she's going to just go to the mat with him. She's going to wipe the floor with him if she can. She's going to do everything. I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody else but Vivian Lee being Scarlett O'Hara. But I swear, if Elizabeth Taylor had been just a little bit older, she's the only other person I could have imagined could do it if she'd been working with a director who would have pushed her like this. I mean, their lives overlap so much. I kind of wanted to tell you this really fun factoid. So not only did Elizabeth Taylor take over a role from Vivian Lee later on in this movie called Elephant Walk when Vivian Lee started to lose her mind a little bit more and had to be hospitalized. Uh, She stole her third husband, Mike Todd, who was married at the time. Um, She stole him away from his fiance. His fiance was played by Evelyn Keyes, who is Sue Ellen in Gone with the Wind. Wow. Which means she literally stole Sue Ellen's man and then married him. (laughs) That is how... Scarlett O'Hara, Olivia, that she was. Your reputation is so large. And I think the way I grew up with Elizabeth Taylor was more like white diamonds. I always get my white diamonds. You know, I I saw her as a salesperson. She was a perfume lady who married a plumber or something. Yes, exactly. Went to Disney World for her birthday, like, and hung out with Michael Jackson. Like, exactly. Like, that's the Elizabeth Taylor I know. So see her here. She doesn't want to do this part. She gets a script and she goes, oh, this, this is not right for me. And it's Richard Burton who says, you know, you you need to do this. You need to do this part. And and she wound up seeing it as her Hamlet. I think most male actors have their Hamlet. Like, mm-hmm. I need to do Hamlet. Hamlet's what I got to do. 
And this was her Hamlet. Well, I can't see any actor, myself included, after watching this movie where you don't go, I want to do this. It's It seems so intense and so exciting. Mike Nichols does it uh, uh, later as an actor. It does Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Elaine May, which I would have loved to have seen too. I know, I was looking for clips of it and I couldn't find it. I mean, because they're, to me, a little bit more what I think of this couple. You know, it's like a little bit more... um, Academia, you know, like Connecticutish. Yeah, Are you like, trying like to say Connecticutish. Well, I just I think that they, there is nothing Connecticutish. You're right about it, her, Martha. Yeah, I mean, but I think you know, that's why again we said like Betty Davis and Henry Ford were kind of the archetypes of what they were thinking about for these roles, and then they get these two people who, I mean, it's amazing, and you're getting people who, like you said, are difficult, but. I want to give a, a positive Elizabeth Taylor story. You know, she gives this monologue, and we'll jump around a little bit uh, at the end about their son and giving birth, right? And she does this like almost two minute long monologue and you're just kind of pushing there and on her face. And it's an amazing, an amazing monologue. And again, you don't see that a lot of times in film, just a two minute monologue. And as she finishes, you hear, and they look up to the rafters and like a grip had fallen asleep. And and Mike Nichols said, as soon as they called cut, she's like, don't fire him. Don't fire him. Please don't fire him. And, you know, like this was her, like she said that she could switch on a dime being that emotionally connected to this character and then immediately being like, no, I'm Elizabeth Taylor. Don't fire that person. You know, I think when people are happy, they are the best versions of themselves. You know, they they are feeling challenged and good. That's why I don't think there's a lot of drama that comes on here. I mean, you know, if anything, this production becomes like a stopping point on the Hollywood tour. You know, people want to come. Marlena Dietrichs comes to, you know, visit them on set. You know, it's like everyone, they're royalty. People are coming to just see them. Time Magazine, I think, put her on the cover, Elizabeth Taylor on the cover, just in her hair and makeup before the movie didn't come out. Like, it's it's crazy to think about all the hubbub over this movie that is not a four-quadrant movie. It's not a big summer film. This is like an intense character piece. Yeah, I mean, when I went looking for old articles, there were just bazillions, even in the lead-up to this. During the shooting, during the casting, everybody cared. I mean, because this couple was so huge. God, there's so many things I want to play, but maybe we should play a little clip from Cleopatra just to get the tenor of how Mm. people thought about this couple when they first met. Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, Siren of the Nile. Her stunning beauty and notorious intrigue turned the tide of civilization. In attaining her objectives, Cleopatra has been known to employ torture, poison, and even her own sexual talents, which are said to be considerable. Richard Burton as Mark Antony, rash, impetuous leader of once invincible legion, dreaded adversary on the field of battle. a pawn in the arms of this woman. All that I shall ever want to hold or look upon or be or have is here now with you. Remember, remember that I want you to forget me, please. Forget? How? I can never be more far away from you than this. I mean, to put this into context, these lines about, you know, her sexual talents and men are pawns, this movie is made not that long after that husband, Mike Todd, that she stole from Sue Ellen, dies in a plane crash. And in the wreckage from that, 
she takes his best friend, Eddie Fisher, and seduces and marries him, even though he's married to Debbie Reynolds of Singing in the Rain, which is just the biggest scandal that had happened in Hollywood at that moment. Everybody lost their collective minds. She lost her her, her reputation overnight. And then she makes this movie. And then she's like, you know what? I'm dumping Eddie Fisher. I'm dumping Eddie Fisher for Richard Burton, who's been married for 12 years. Wow. And it's just, I mean, it is actual complete chaos to the point, like I referenced this earlier, but... A congresswoman in the House of Representatives said that Elizabeth had, quote, lowered the prestige of American women abroad and damaged goodwill in foreign countries. And she Whoa. tried to revoke her passport because she was undesirable. Holy cow. I mean, and so in a weird way, I could imagine part of the response to this film or the positive response to this film is seeing them laid bare and dirty and ugly and fighting because – they're so glamorous or they're so perceived as, you know, you know, Cleopatra is this gorgeous kind of Ben-Hur looking piece. And then you see them dirtied up and you're like, oh, yeah, that's what they're really like. It's kind of ripping them down to the studs. And, you know, it's a movie that you're asking a lot of an audience to then watch these two in, in black and white. But it's the only way you can really do it. The only way you can kind of age up a 32-year-old Elizabeth Taylor is to shoot her in black and white. Or it doesn't work. She looks like she's in clown makeup when you look at color photos of her in this uh, piece. It's true. And I, you know, I think part of the appeal of this being the film that's known for being based on the play, where it's two people just yelling at each other yeah. nonstop, is everybody knew that that's a lot of what their relationship really, really was like. I mean, Burton would call Elizabeth things like Miss Tits and Little Miss Mammary. Wow. And he said to her, the very first words he ever said to her on the set of Cleopatra were, quote, you're much too fat, love, but you do have a pretty little face. Wow. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, let's talk a little bit about Richard Burton, too. I mean, Richard Burton, he blew me away in this movie. I mean, it's like watching two amazing tennis pros just like just show off like they're, you know, they pass it over to the next one and then the next one does their amazing move. And then they just come moving back and forth. But, uh, it feels like they both bring out the best of each other here. Like, I mean, yeah, the you, best and the worst. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in this, I think they're working towards a positive outcome by maybe tapping into their worst parts of themselves. You know, Mike Nichols says, you know, at this point in Burton's career, he's a guy who, isn't that great at memorizing, committed to the work, wants to be there, but is losing his faculties in, in that, you know, and this is a movie where you're memorizing large chunks of dialogue. It, it's not a simple movie. I mean, he is a drunk. Okay, right. She's a drunk. They're both super drunks. Now, I didn't know that much about that part of them. Like, so they are, they, I mean, Elizabeth Taylor's a drunk too? Yeah, they're both drunks. Okay, so here's Burton coming on and that scene where he is uh, at the swing set and he does his monologue about the boy and the Bergen and, and, and it's a great monologue. They shoot it. And the next day, 
the DP comes to Mike Nichols and says, um, so we actually shot that on the wrong exposure and, and not like by like one off, we were like eight off on the exposure and Mike Nichols knowing Richard Burton and what he's capable of. He's like, well, I'll never get that performance out of him again. So we're not going to do it. You need to bump it up. You need to figure out how to make this look good. So that scene in the film is completely bumped up. It almost looks day for night, even though shot at night, because Mike Nichols understood what he was capable of at that point in his life. It wasn't like he refused to do it. It was like, I'm not even, I'm not even go there. I can't even I can't even open that door, which I think is amazing. I mean, that's what people are about you, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I, but I, that I have a whole thing, and that's I rule by an iron fist, uh, <laughs> and that's fine. Um, you're you're having to balance these two people, and then these other two actors who are in this movie that are fantastic. I mean, George Siegel is amazing, someone who Mike Nichols worked with on Broadway, but then Sandy Dennis, whoa, yeah, I'm like whoa. so team Sandy Dennis. I'm like. Sandstorm. I'm the original Sandstorm member of the Sandy Dennis Sand fan club. But before we bring them into this, yeah, I want to play one thing from this last from this last stretch of them together that we get to see that Mike Nichols shows us that they don't get to see, mm-hmm. which is that these insults that they're always throwing at each other. Mm-hmm. In a way, it is part of the glue of their relationship. Here, let's listen. You never put any ice in my drink. Why is that, huh? I always put ice in your drinks, Martha. You eat it, that's all. It's this habit you've got of chewing on your ice cubes like a cocker spaniel. You'll crack your big teeth. Well, they're my big teeth. Yeah, some of them, some of them. I got more teeth than you have. Two more. Mm. Oh, you're going bald. So are you. <laughs> So they never see that. They never see that side of them. They just come in when it's all hell has broken loose and they don't quite get the complexity of their relationship. Well, that's what I was talking about earlier, this idea that in this first, you know, 15 minutes of the movie, you go through such a roller coaster with them. This scene really kind of resets your whole mindset on the whole movie. And this is where I was saying early on in the podcast it is a story about love. I, I do believe these people love each other. I, I think that they, you know, the way they express it and these moments they show, these moments of pure connection and 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 sweetness, and even in some of the teasing, you see this this real connection. Because I think at the end of the day, you're supposed to, on the surface, go, here's a couple that's dysfunctional, and then here's a couple that is functional. And through the course of the night, I think you start to swap that interpretation. And so we should maybe even talk about that other couple, um, which is, of course, uh, George Siegel, who's fantastic, who Mike Nichols has worked with uh, on Broadway, and then Sandy Dennis, who I think is, whoa. I never, I mean, I, I don't even think I know her from anything else. Would I know her from anything else? Yeah, I mean, this was her film debut. Uh-huh. And it's, oh, it's just such a perfectly realized performance. What happens now is they walk in the door right as Elizabeth Taylor is yelling, God damn you. And George Siegel's whispering, like, I told you we shouldn't have come. And you just see these two reluctant husbands and their two wives who are kind of overcompensating with a lot of talk right. right away. And there's this tiny moment where you see Sandy Dennis, you know, playing Honey, which I don't think is her name. It's just nobody even bothers to name her because she seems so 
extra to them. She mm. doesn't seem like she's important at all to the proceedings. They don't care. She's just a mousy little wife. So Honey is the name that she's been given in the credits. That Honey just elbows her husband really quickly to make him agree that their house is lovely, to be to play right. along with this whole ruse. I don't know. What I really see in her is just like her nerves. You know, mm. she puts her coat on the back of the couch and she sort of nervously pats it and that mm. she's smiling extra big, you know, gums showing because she's so nervous about trying to put on a good impression. And then also Mike Nichols is doing it in his framing. I mean, I think it's Elizabeth Taylor who asks uh, George Siegel some question about how he was an athlete in school. And the way that Mike Nichols frames it is you see George Siegel's face in the front, her behind him over his shoulder kind of interjecting his annoyance in his face that she can't see mm. and just her so small in the background trying to be part of the frame and him not wanting her to, to be in at all. And this is right when the couple is over there for the first time. He sets a tone that's very tense without being claustrophobic. And that's hard to do in a movie that really takes place in a handful of environments, you know, and there's no real time jumps. You're, you're living with these characters. And I think it's this kind of push and pull with not only changing locations, pulling people in and out, um, but through the pacing of how it's shot. Because it's like, okay, I can relax. Okay, now I can't relax. Now I can relax again. And I, you know, um, I just am, I'm constantly impressed by it. I'm so happy that Mike Nichols did this because there was a version of the script that was heavily rewritten, you know. Um, and Mike Nichols kind of came in and, and set a couple things straight. I mean, one of the, I mean, can we, should we talk about the end or, you know, this idea of their their child and everything? There was a version of the script um, that was written that they actually did have a child and that he committed suicide in the closet. And they had papered over the closet with, you know, wallpaper and they never went back in there. And that's the secret of the house. And Mike Nichols was like, oh, no, no, we... You definitely cannot do that. That's that we know absolutely not. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just like. But you <laughs> do can they think they're writing like a post story or something? I think that they were trying to figure out. It's a it's a tough concept to kind of wrap your head around. It's not very straightforward. So I think they were trying to make it a little bit more cinematic, a little bit more like dun dun dun. But the dun 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 is so much more interesting that there is no child. I mean that that I mean I I know we're kind of jumping to the end, but it's like, but it's interesting how. They avoided, I think, a lot of tropes that would have made this movie kind of just be another adaptation of something that may not have worked. I mean, if we're in the end zone, yeah. I do have to say that is what the thing I kind of have always wrestled with with this play and with this movie is it starts off being so wonderfully realistic. Mm -hmm. And then it takes this switch to the metaphorical that I just I, I never really can quite reconcile it in myself either. I think I come to this plot arc with years of resentment towards this kind of plot arc. I was literally you know? thinking of you going, yeah. oh, she's going to say, like, because we talk about this idea, like, why well. are they upset? Why are they upset? Oh, because they had a miscarriage. Yeah. Or they, yes. And it drives me nuts in so many movies. I mean, it, I mean, this is basically exactly the movie that Brad Pitt and Angelina made when they made that movie of the two of them off somewhere and whatever it was. And right. they argue, 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 get drunk too much, look very, very glamorous. And at the end, it's like, we had a dead baby. And it just drives me absolutely mental. And so it's, ugh, it's so weird. I don't really love it as a plotting device. And I don't really love it as an idea. And maybe this is just me coming yeah. with so much of my own prejudice to things. But 
I can't think of that many movies where like the male character is defined by his ability to have or to not have kids or to have had a kid and lost it. And there's so many movies where a female character is. Div- I mean, I'm sure there's like examples of of men that that have been divided, right? Way, but it just feels like. Even Scarlett O'Hara, to some level, there's a little bit of like, but her kid, you know, well, and and uh, the kidness of it all. This is why I like it. You're talking about a movie that's kind of bucking the trend, right? Like this is a showing a couple who isn't, you know, uh, following the exact rules. You know, they're they don't have a child. They're they're kind of breaking breaking the norms of society. So I think that that's at this time something different. I think a lot of people have said. Oh, this is a, a metaphor for you know uh, gay couples at the time. Something that uh, I'll be vehemently uh, denied. He literally says that bullshit that Virginia Woolf was about two male couples. Every time some damn fool asks you that question because they read it somewhere, you have to sigh and deny it again. They print your sigh and denial, and it perpetuates the falsehood. I don't know why people pay attention when someone's told them something isn't true. Why don't they just accept it? I'm perfectly capable of writing gay characters if I wanted to. There are some uh, gay people... uh, Flitting around my plays from time to time, I think Butler and Tiny Alice is probably gay. Certainly Jack and Everything in the Garden is gay. But I certainly wouldn't put gay couples in a domestic scene on a university campus, which is one of the most conservative establishments imaginable. That would be ludicrous. So that is a, a, that is Edward Albee just shutting down that rumor that he wasn't writing it to be a metaphor for something else. I mean, that statement tracks because I think in the 70s, they want to do an all-male revival of yes. Virginia Woolf. I don't remember who else was going to be in it, but yeah. I think John Voight was one of them. And yeah. Edward Albee was like, absolutely There's not. no way. But so what I love about this thing is it's this couple who is bucking this this norm, this conservative academia, you know, and and – They've created this like little secret for themselves. I think it's like it it encompasses their love. I don't think it's like we couldn't have it or it died. It's it's actually more to me more mentally. I think they exciting. couldn't have it though. I think they biologically couldn't. They all right. So, but even all right. So let's say that and you you probably are right, and I may have missed that. But I think the idea of creating it and living in this fantasy of it is not, I don't think their anger is coming out of that. I don't think their anger is staying. I think this is what their love is so deep that they've created this kind of fun, you know, like, I mean, I've heard a lot of people talk about this as like fun and games. Like they're playing these games with this couple. But this is their game, you know, and how betrayed he feels that she shared this game. She doesn't share the fact, oh, we weren't able to have a child. She shares the fact that it's it's the 16th birthday coming up. It's not about falling into the trope. I think the trope would be, and he hung himself in the closet. I don't know. I mean, I hear you, but to me, the trope is about more like, here's an interesting woman, but the key to her personality isn't her brains, it's her ovaries. But I don't think that that, you don't think. No, I think that's here. I definitely think that's here. It's also here in Honey. I mean, this whole thing about like, Honey not wanting to have kids and like, I mean, even George just accusing her of having her, like, right. secret little murders, which is the way that I guess a man refers to the fact that birth control wasn't readily available, which is just super weird. I mean, I've read, like, these psychological examinations of the character of yeah. Honey, which I just find incredibly annoying. Right. Uh, here's one of them. This is written by some psychologist on the Internet. He said, her pathological fear of pregnancy, which is something she admits, mm-hmm. um, demonstrates that she is afflicted by psychosomatic infertility. And that Cohen in his studies of infertility has found that the unconscious psychological factors play a role in producing psychosomatic infertility 
and that this is a symptom that emerges among the weak, emotional, immature, overprotected, and overprotecting dependent female who is abnormally fearful of motherhood, pregnancy, and labor. Which I find all of that just, like, can a girl just not want to have kids, but abnormally fearful of motherhood? Let's see what Mike Nichols has to say a little bit about the, the idea of, of the baby here. And in the same way, the central metaphor of an imaginary child that only they know about, you understand a lot about it when you think of love and, and the possibilities of love and the impossibilities of it. And the fact that during the course of these two hours that he is betraying it, that he's betraying their imaginary, the fact of their imaginary child, that he's talking to other people about it, and she says, how could you? And he says, well, but you started, you broke the rule. You mentioned him first, which he said gave him the freedom to do it. You can't take all that out and just say it was a real kid who killed himself. I didn't see her as being so caught up in just wanting a child. I think it was like a part of their relationship, but I didn't think it was an overarching, defining thing about their relationship. I don't think that this relationship would have been better if they could have biologically been able to have kids. I mean... But if you do, I mean, that's, you know... Her agony when the kid is killed is interesting. I also... You know, it's weird. I do love this movie and the performances so much. And maybe it's just me. Maybe somebody can explain it to me in a way that makes sense. But... I think it's so weird that at the beginning of this movie, he's like, don't tell him about the kid. And then she immediately tells him about the kid. But you get the sense she's hidden the kid for 16 years. Like he tells, he says, don't tell him about the kid as though she has this habit of bringing up the kid. And I don't know why if she's actually kept it a secret for 16 years, he's A, warning her not to do it. And B, she immediately does it. I I can't quite figure that out in my head. Hmm. I mean, I think... You know, maybe he knows that she's drunk and she's got loose lips. And, but she's always drunk. And right. she's loose everywhere, according <laughs> to him, according to everybody. I'm conflicted on this point because they're creating the life that works for them. And I think there's something special about it. If you told somebody, we have an imaginary kid, you're crazy. Right? But the secret there is, no, this is our little thing. It's the way the couples have their own not secret language, but the way that, you know, like you played that scene earlier, like, well, you're bald, well, you're bald. Like that, like there's a, a sweetness and there's a an intimacy that you would never want to share with anybody else. And I think it's like, protect our intimacy here tonight. Like, yes, we are going to be terrible people because we are, and that's what we are, and we'll snipe at each other, but protect our intimacy. And and yes, it's a play and it's a metaphor. And I think the ba- like, I think it's like a metaphor for that. And it's like, and she she doesn't protect their intimacy. And, and, and a few times, and he doesn't protect hers. You know, I think they're both equally at fault. But I, I think that that's what it's representing is like she takes for granted this one, the one thing that they hold sacred here. And and that kind of creates the real spiral of the night. I mean, I think that you are correct in everything that this means metaphorically. And I really do like the metaphorical arc of only when we destroy all the last little bits we've been hiding from each other. Can we be truly honest? Right. Even though that doesn't really get to the core of the fact that George is... Ne- is almost never that honest with her and he almost never gets honest and he almost never lashes out and says what he really, really thinks. Except towards his end when we see him cry a little bit. But even when he cries, it's like he vocally laughs when he thinks she's having sex with mm-hmm. um, Nick upstairs. And then as soon as he closes or so he can't so he can't be heard, he starts crying. I mean so by the way how he's hiding himself. So even though his grand revelation is like, let's destroy our all, all our lies, I don't know how much I buy it from him. But even so, I think there is just something discordant for me in the idea 
that it has to happen within this couple who have their set way of doing it. It's like if I said, hey, Paul, whatever you do today, please don't draw the anarchy symbol on my forehead. And you're right. like, I was never planning on doing that. I've never done that in all of our history. Right. But I'm going to do it, and it's going to set this whole play into motion. I do think that, unfortunately, that is just the gimmick of, like, cinema, art, you know, playwriting. It's sort of like you, – you. I think it's sort of like – we're only at, we're only spending a limited period of time with these people, so you compact things, you you present things in a way that just has to be done. You know, a lot of the times, I think what, when you see on TV series, they you know they show you the gun in episode one, and then by the time it takes it out, it's episode eight, but the gun's been there the whole time, and I think that they needed to kind of. I think there is a certain tropes that you have to do, and to me, the reveal that the sun doesn't exist was not a dun dun dun. It was more like oh. Because I was expecting it to be the sun died. And that it wasn't that the sun died was so much more interesting to me and spoke so much more about their relationship that I was like, wow, that's so, it, it fascinating to me. I don't know. It's like, I, just, I think that that's what took me for a loop. I mean, I don't think I'll ever buy that she just suddenly tells this honey chick about right. the kid. I don't think I'll ever really, 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 right. really buy that. But I can try to buy it maybe by comparing it to... My other favorite Edward Albee play, have you ever heard of The Goat or Who is Sylvia? No. Okay. This play, I love this play. I've seen this play performed a bit. I've read it a couple times. It's um, one of his later plays right before he died or in the, the decade before yeah. he died. It's from the 2000s. And this play is also about a couple. It opens with the couple having banter a lot like this, more loving, but you get to see this couple have this connection, this intimacy. And then it also has this completely insane, gigantic allegorical right hook, which is that the man is having an affair and he's having an affair with a goat. That's who Sylvia is. This play, like if people have not seen this play, this play is just absolutely mental. The wife finds out in the first act that he is having an affair with a goat. And the man- in Well, the, in the first act. Yeah, I guess before intermission. And the man like in the whole play is always very sincere about his love of the goat. He's like, it's, you know, she looks at me with these innocent eyes. I feel at home with her. I trust wow. her. He never, ever, ever backs down from that point of view. And then at the end of the play, the wife kills the goat. After breaking everything in their house, walks into the house with this dead goat and dumps it. And then the play ends. Wow. And so I guess if I buy the goat, I can try to buy the baby thing, but it still bothers me. Well, can we just hear a little bit about uh, Edward Albee and how he writes? Because we're talking a lot about Edward Albee. And here's how he talks about how he kind of finds these characters and how he writes for these characters. My director, Alan Schneider, would come to me weeks before rehearsal with hundreds of questions about the characters I'd written, expecting me to have all of the answers, including things like, this doesn't occur in the play, but what if Jerry or Peter were walking down the street and an old woman came up to him and started talking, how would he respond? Alan Schneider was trying to find out a great deal more about um, the characters. And I discovered rather amazingly that I knew the answers, even though I hadn't thought about them. In other words, I'd done my own homework, and I knew who the characters were quite well. And I started thinking about the fact that um, maybe I should start doing, for myself as a writer, improvisations with my characters, that I should put them in situations which wouldn't be in the play, and see how they respond, and find out more about the nature of the characters if I did that. Then I realized this was sort of, though different, the kind of thing that actors do with actors' improvisations. They try to um, find out more about who they, how they interpret the character by putting the character in bizarre situations. I just thought it was really interesting to hear 
how he wrote because it seems like in a way he's not precious about it. He's kind of exploring these characters. And I think this like kind of depth that we're talking about that these characters have this like it it feels like you know maybe he you know if to do the bad version of it he wrote like uh you know 120 page play and he only released 97 pages of it you know it's like it's like that like he's editing himself and he's creating these things so i think you know some of the stuff that we are reacting to that may come out of the blue or that may feel like it's hit over the head or why are they saying this now or why is that being revealed it's something that he's really thought about. So if you, we should bring him in here. Let's get Edward Albee in here. Can we get him on the phone? No? Okay. Uh, Can we get him on the Ouija board? Let's get him on the Ouija board. Can I, all right, let me ask you one question that is really base. Is there a world in which you could see Hannibal Lecter becoming this character? Oh my God, I wrote that down. Really? I wrote that in my notes. (laughs) I was like, this is Hannibal Lecter if he doesn't go on the serial killing spree. This is, that like, that's exactly, and I don't know if it's the intonation that Richard Burton has as his voice, but there was something about like the way and the way that he spoke in the crisp, clear, undercutting and seeing through each person. Like there was that line goes, I know about history. I know when I'm being, you know, like, you know, it's like, I know when I'm being threatened, you know, it's like, there's just like these lines. He just, I was like, this is Hannibal Lecter. There's an element of Hannibal Lecter here. Wow. I mean, I wrote down Hannibal Lecter because I was thinking how long it takes for us to realize that George is the meanest person in the room. Mm. And that I think his British accent covers up a lot of it. Interesting. That you're like, oh, Elizabeth Taylor, what a drunken mess. But he's like, oh, no, I sound so educated and refined. You are missing the fact that I am absolutely out to get everybody, and I am so angry. And we don't hear it because we associate his his voice with You don't think that Martha pushes him to that that thing like when they're in the parking lot? Like they, I think that Marsha's like – not Marsha. Uh, Marsha, 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 Marsha. She's challenging him. She's bringing home this guy who is this sexy professor. You know, that's how she sets him up to him, you know. Already Ooh. making him feel. I just in- got these flashbacks of when I dated like a PhD British dude. Oh wow! Ooh. I want to get a whole show about your dating life. No, uh, it's not. Um, but like the idea, like she's challenging him, and then he comes back swinging even harder. You know, like they're both they're just dis- they're being destructive. But I feel like she- by even bringing these people to the house, she's throwing the first punch, and then when they declare war on each other in that parking lot. That's like when he does the most low blow, which is like coming in to say that their child is dead. Well, I think a couple of things. I think a couple of things. I think the dynamic of their relationship is this. She takes a step forward, right, Mm -hmm. which is what we see her doing at the beginning, because he keeps taking a step back Mm -hmm. in that he won't join her in actually having an honest conversation, you know, because he's always deflective and he's always acting like he's tough. And so I think she has just gotten in the habit over decades of doing anything she can to get any sort of a rise out of him because that's the only time he's actually being honest with her. Which is why she brought up the baby. Okay, maybe. Maybe. But in that parking lot scene, let's listen to it, actually, because it almost sounds a little bit, well, A, like Thanos, and B, like Scarlett (laughs) O'Hara. Snap! It breaks, and you just don't give a damn anymore. I've tried with you, baby. I've really tried. Come off it, Martha. I've really tried. You're a monster. You are. I'm loud and I'm vulgar and I wear the pants in the house because somebody's got to. But I am not a monster. I'm not. You're a spoiled, self-indulgent, willful, dirty-minded, liquor-ridden. It went snap. I'm not going to try to get through to you anymore. 
There was a second back there. Yeah, there was a second. Just a second when I could have gotten through to you. When, when maybe we could have cut through all this... this crap! But it's past. And I'm not going to try. Once a month, Martha. I've gotten used to it. Once a month and we get misunderstood Martha, the good-hearted girl underneath the barnacles, the little miss that the touch of kindness will bring to bloom again. I mean, yeah. what I hear in that is just the isolation she has felt being alone in this relationship with him. Well, don't you think, I, this is the way I view it too. It's like, don't you feel like she's looking at someone who has not achieved his potential? Like, why aren't, why have you stopped caring? Why have you, it's like, it's like the tough love. Like, I do think that she's challenging him because she wants him to be better than he is. And he has the potential. He doesn't need to be not, he should be the head of the department. He should be, you know, moving. He should be like, but no, he's content to not even really even engage her about a movie. He's just content to kind of sit there. And I love his outfit and the sweater and the, it just looks like a man who is, ready to retire, but yet never, never put himself out on the line. You Who know what I'm saying? Wilksian. Yeah. She, oh, this is like what happens if Scarlett marries Ashley Wilkes. I mean, in a way, <laughs> I mean, yeah. And look, I, I think that that's what makes this relationship so complex because it is coming from this place of love. Here's Elizabeth Taylor talking about their relationship. Just a, a quick little thing here. I'm playing a drunk, ravenous 55-year-old woman who was deeply in love with her husband but didn't know how to express it. And I thought that was interesting that she didn't know how to express it. Like, she only knows how to get him to be better by being mean. Yeah. Or he's not, he hasn't been getting better the whole time. No, He's right. been yes. trying the same failed routine. They're in yeah. the same failed routine. But at the end, they break the cycle. And I think that that image out the window at the end, the light coming in, the light breaking the darkness kind of shows like now they're laid bare. Do they move forward in a better way now? Or have they have they lost all the facades that have been up? Well, sometimes what really interests me about this play and this story is wondering if part of it is ever this coordinated act between Martha and George just to destroy Honey and Nick I think before about that they a lot. get a, yes. a huge foothold Like on they've the done this like 10 times. Yeah, that they do this to everybody. Yes. They bring somebody over. They do this like faint intimacy thing. They draw them out. They act weak just enough to get them to reveal it's themselves. It's their game. And then it's they have this like emotional blackmail on them forever that his dick doesn't work and that she's a mess. Oh, or, you know, to me, it's also like it's the idea of like the townie mentality. It's like they're in this town, people come and go, it's a transient place. So this is the way they enjoy their, you know, it's it's playing. It's it's like strangers, you know, the movie, the horror movie. It's like they're just playing with the people that are visiting the Airbnb or whatever. It's like I, I don't I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite scenes is part of the segment. I mean, it's almost hard to say like what scene is your favorite scene because all the conversations just flow into yeah. each other. It's this They endless, barely stop, yeah. Yeah, they barely stop and they mutate. Every scene is about seven different things or maybe one thing, but seven different permutations of yeah. it. And on, in the under the tree scene, you have this moment between George and Nick where George has been letting himself get comforted by Nick just enough to really know enough about Nick that he can absolutely eat him alive. Yes. And I love this scene. What I thought I'd do is I... I'd sort of insinuate myself generally, you know, find all the weak spots. Mm -hmm. Like me. Become sort of a fact, and then uh, <clears throat> turn into a... A what? A, 
an inevitability? Exactly. An inevitability. Uh, take over a few courses from the older men. Plow uh, a few pertinent wives. Now that's it. I mean, you can shove aside all the older men you can find, but until you start plowing pertinent wives, you're really not working. That's the way to power. Plow them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the way to a man's heart. The wide, inviting avenue to his job is through his wife, and don't you forget it. And I'll bet you your wife's got the widest, most inviting avenue on the whole damn campus. <laughs> I mean, her father being president and all. <laughs> you bet your historical inevitability. <laughs> yes, sirree. I just better get her off into the bushes right away. <laughs> Why, you'd certainly better. <laughs> Ooh, that little laugh, that ha ha ha. Yes. But that's the Hannibal Lecter moment that I wrote down in there because I was like, that's when I saw it. I will, but I will say what I think is so interesting is you said, you know, that George is the most evil character, the nastiest character. I, I think you can make a real case for Nick being the most duplicitous like he's not yelling at anyone but i think he's the fakest of the bunch right and he's the one that's the most duplicitous and you know and when you said earlier like he's like oh i told you we shouldn't go i almost think that that's a lie that he's telling uh that he's telling honey because he wants to go there because he knows exactly what he just said which is that's the president of the university's daughter like i just think that like he and he reveals something of himself, maybe because it's his drinking or whatever, but he is the most untrustworthy character, in my opinion. Well, I don't know. That's there's something about him that really strikes me as being the worst. I mean, I think he is the worst in that he he is so such a dope who thinks he has all the power. Yes. And that he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. And he underestimates everybody. And you know what I really, really, really hate about him? Oh, that moment when um they're dancing at the bar and it's Elizabeth Taylor dancing with him to to absolutely infuriate yeah. Richard Burton. And he does this goofy little like, oh, I'm such a cool dude thumb yes, dance. I'm I like, love oh, it. that's such a cool dude thumb dance. I mean, he could have won the Oscar for that. Oh, I mean, if we're talking about dancing. We have to talk about Sandy Dennis's dance there too. And she's just kind of just free forming it in that bar. Oh, it's amazing. And that her it, little scarf dance. It's amazing. Oh. At Founders Brewing Company, we set out to create a beer that lets you embrace the unconventional. Mortal Bloom is a radiantly beautiful, hazy IPA that will wrap your taste buds with intense citrus and tropical notes of pineapple and mango. Coming in at 6.2% ABV with big aromatics and no bitterness, it's the perfect beer, if we do say so ourselves. Visit foundersbrewing.com to find Mortal Bloom Hazy IPA. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. We're talking about a lot of interesting stuff here. This, you know, this, did you believe that they're in love? I don't know if you do. I find them to be, let's see, let me really think about this because I go back and forth on it a lot. I find them to be frustrating in that zone of if they could just cut the crap, but they probably won't. But they will not leave each other. 
I do believe they're tethered. Like there's a part of me in my relationships with, you know, family and friends and wives and girlfriends. There's something about when you have the ability to fight with somebody. Why are you pluralizing wives? Oh, yeah. I guess wife. (laughs) Sorry. I was going general, but then I I, I can just be specific. Um, I always felt that the best relationships I've been in are relationships, and this is, again, across the board with my multiple wives, um, (laughs) that that you're able to fight with somebody. Like you're able to actually have – to go to the mat with them a little bit and and not fear that they're going to leave you or or that they that you'll they'll you'll be seen in a way that will be you know tossed away afterwards and and I think like in some of the the worst relationships I've been in are the exact opposite the ones that you're afraid like oh, I don't want to say that I can't I don't feel comfortable enough saying it and and this is obviously a much bigger example of that, but I don't feel like this is a the relation. This is this fight. They're never going to leave each other. You don't feel like they maybe they'll kill each other, but I don't think that they're going to leave each other. You know what I'm saying? And that, and that, that, that is a difference. I mean, it's it's a different. You know, it's a subtle difference, but it's a, it's a big one. Yeah, I mean, I do totally buy that about arguments and healthy relationships. As an only kid, that's been the part I've always struggled with because yeah. you know I'm not used to arguing with people since I'm an only kid. You know, not that like you took no, my toy box. I hate you. We I don't used to really fight with my that. mom, but that yeah, I didn't have like a brother or sister to fight with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we don't have practice in arguing and making up. We don't have practice right. in making up. I right, think, is exactly. The main thing. So yeah, like Meanwhile, learning. My two I can sons argue like are fighting people. like ten times a day, like yeah. you know, and making up and apologizing. Yeah, it's a different yeah. Thing. Like I have uh, boyfriends mm-hmm. uh, who have talked about. How, I don't know. I had to like over pluralize right, right. now. Who have talked about how in their previous relationships they would get into fights where people would break TVs. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. That just seems insane to me. Yeah. That a relationship would ever be like that. And by the way, like I'm, you know, uh, I think verbal fighting, if we can really, you know, go to that level where yeah. I'm saying that you have to punch people. But and without it, insulting each other. I guess just st- sticking up for yourself verbally, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I is think it's hard. You know, for me, it's always I think I came from a family that was very much like a fighting family. My mom and I would fight and I would give her bloody noses because it would stress her out so much just from yelling Whoa. and fighting. Yeah. Like it was like, so that was like, are our, you Carrie? Yeah. I was like, ah. uh, but no, it's like, and that was like, so I grew up in a family that was very much like that. My wife now, uh, my, well, she's my fourth. Um, <laughs> she, you know, came from a family that I don't think fought the way that I fought with my family, you know? And, and I think when people would see my family's fight, or or whatever, like my mom and her mom. It's like, it's an intense thing, but I grew up with it. It didn't ever occur to me as being anything wow. out of the norm. I've seen other people now and I go, oh yeah, that was pretty crazy. But but it, it was, it never spoke of our relationship. You know what I'm saying? It's interesting. I just think that different people have different ways to kind of communicate. And obviously I don't communicate the exact same way, but- uh, No more nosebleeds. No more nosebleeds. You know I think she really, 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 really does love him. I mean, let's play her ode to George, which is when she tells a disbelieving Nick that, yeah, this is the man for her. Who can keep learning the games we play as quickly as I can change them. Who can make me happy and I do not wish to be happy. Yes, I do wish to be happy. George and Martha. Sad, sad, sad. Whom I will not forgive for having come to rest, for having seen me and having said, Yes, this will do. Who has made the hideous, the hurting, the insulting mistake of loving me? I must. 
must be punished for it. George and Martha. Sad, sad, sad. Sad, sad, sad. What do you think of the theory that Edward Albee named them George and Martha because of George and Martha Washington and that this play to him is actually about America? Wow. That's a really interesting point of view. I mean, it's about, you know, high hopes, lost dreams, you know, not feeling like you got what you were promised. I could kind of say it too. Like and you, kind of being trapped. You but tried also, to give birth to this country. Yeah. How lovely is it, though, that at the end of this film, after watching them start off in conflict and always be at each other, that you get this moment of the two of them in harmony, even aligned against these interloper couples that they've invited in their house to destroy. To really hear the harmony and the way they talk and the way it's staged and the way their conversation comes together. Let's just listen. Pansies, rosemary, violence, my wedding bouquet. Well, if you two kids don't mind, I think I'd just get it. Ah! You stay right where you are. Make my hubby a drink. I don't think I will. No, Martha, no. That would be too much. I mean, he's your houseboy, baby, not mine. I'm nobody's houseboy. No. Now. I'm nobody's houseboy now. <laughs> Vicious. Children, huh? They're right. And this is, again, what keeps you guessing about them in every way. It's just kind of flipping the script, flipping the script, and, and showing you where they are connected. I mean, they, yeah, they're stronger as a unit sometimes together. How is this movie received when it comes out? I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting film. And A, it's, it's well, we mentioned this, a kind of the first R-rated film. It's this this film that's based on a play that's so popular. It's, it's weird because you're taking something that is in the public consciousness and then you're saying, we're going to remake it while it's still ultimately in the public consciousness. You know, and you, how do you do that? You know, how do you, how do you, you know, fulfill that? Um and you know, what, what did people say? Yeah, I mean, you're right. There were gigantic fights about this. In Nashville, there was this police sergeant slash Sunday school teacher. Um, his name was Fred Cobb. And he halted a screening. He like went into the theater and he confiscated a reel of the film. And the 700 people who are in the theater had to demand refunds. Whoa. And he was like, I denounced this film. This film is blasphemous. And um, they wound up making him, the courts overruled him and said that he had to let them show the movie. Wow. But these were the sort of things that the filmmakers and the producers were really freaked out about. You make the most expensive movie. Black of and white time. movie, yeah. yeah. But so anyways, the review is mostly positive, although there was one big pan from Andrew Saris of The Village Voice. Oh, interesting. Andrew Saris doesn't like it. Wow. I know. And he likes some of it. So here's what he says. The movie isn't all that good, but it's reasonably entertaining and effective within certain limitations, some evitable and some inevitable. Sorry, I don't like the way Andrew Sarris writes, so I'm just going to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. When they were first announced for the parts, it struck me that Burton was miscast and Taylor too well cast, but it turned out Burton was inspired miscasting. You can't believe that he'd put up with Taylor for 20 years or even 20 minutes, and you can't believe that Taylor had been a spouse to a college campus much past her prime, and you can't imagine Burton and Taylor anywhere except in a co- in a... Sweet full of stooges in the St. Regis. So he's having a huge problem yeah, just putting yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, per, their personas aside. He just can't. Which I think is easier for us to do because right, we right, didn't grow it's, up Yeah, in yeah, exactly. Era. They can't even see, yeah. Liz lacks Burton's class and charm, particularly in the all-too-rare quiet moments when she is supposed to be listening and reacting, moments that are the supreme tests of acting. He says it is at those moments that a sullen coarseness invades her dulled features, which I would say is 
her acting drunk. I, and I totally that, agree, yeah. Uh, but he says, not only does Taylor's performance lack genuine warmth, which I would also say she's not safe to show genuine warmth, um, that uh, George Siegel and Sandy Dennis are degraded even more than the script demands by their overemphasized reactions and unnecessary mannerisms. Nichols should have restrained Miss Dennis from acting so much with her teeth, and Siegel Ooh. should have been quieter. He also hated the camera work. He said, there's no need to jump up and down with the camera every time a character suggests humping the hostess. Nor is there any need to take the action outside, where the hypnotic spell of an alcoholic mood can be dispelled by the fakey emptiness of exteriors. Fakey emptiness? They were literally in the right spots. (laughs) He says that Nichols gained nothing in the way of genuine cinema with his screeching station wagon, and that Nichols has always been more of a tactician than a strategist, but by trying to win every battle, he has lost the war. And in the process, he has come up with a film that looks pretentious and old-fashioned at the same time. You know, I totally disagree with that because I do believe that what I like about the way they take the, I mean, I disagree with a lot of things about it, but I want to talk about going outside. What, again, what I think is so great about going outside is it, it helps buy in that they stay. We'll drive you home. Oh, we'll have a more drink. Okay, now I'm leaving you there. You're going to come back to me. We're going to fuck. She passes out. They hit it. Like it, it, it continues the cycle in a way that I think if you were watching this, I think when you watch it on stage, you could watch it. And you don't ask this many questions, but when you're watching it in a film, it's, it's, it helps. It helps. It's not just to walk out. The, they, they, also do, they don't just do a scene on the porch. They make very conscious choices. And even when Elizabeth Taylor is like looking for Richard Burton, you know, towards the end, like they, it, it really just helps open the film. And I, I think it, it yeah. almost, it almost grounds it. She yeah. looks so small and alone yeah. in the darkness. She looks small. And Without small. him, too. I mean, yeah. the opening shot is with him and he's in the darkness. I do want to say, though, I agree with one sentence of Saris's review, only not for this movie. Mm-hmm. I think that in The Graduate, and I know I'm beating a dead horse here, <laughs> but in The Graduate, Mike Nichols does try to win every war. He tries to win the war of, like, social criticism and comedy and drama and sex. And I think in trying to win all of those things... It does destroy the movie. And I just specifically in that scene, I cannot get over it, where Dustin Hoffman kisses Mrs. Robinson right after she's inhaled her cigarette. I just, he's going for comedy there. And in that comedy, it breaks any attraction. I just have to say that again. I think he tries <laughs> for too many things in that movie. And I think it is what destroys the movie. So I think Andrew Sarris is just psychic. Well, I will say that I think in this movie, he reaches for a lot of different things. He's talking about power and he's talking about resentment and he's talking about, you know, the idea of being stuck in a place and, and wanting to achieve more and love and, and you know, and what is true love versus what is convenient love. Like, I think he's doing a lot of stuff. You know, I think the benefit is Edward Albee. I, I mean, but I'm not slighting uh, Buck Henry at all. I, I don't know. I I think that, um, this movie is funny and I think it's dramatic and I think it switches on a dime. And, you know, comparatively, I think The Graduate is a much more visual feast and I think this is a much more verbal feast. You know, it, it, this is, uh, you know, I think that those are the two things. I mean, music is the driving force of The Graduate and these, uh, these iconic scenes. This is all so dialogue-based. Um, yeah, I mean, there are some really good cuts in here. I think there's like a really good cut Maybe something where, like, Elizabeth Taylor goes from one door to another door. Yeah. I think something about that is really wonderful. There's another good cut where he stamps on the brakes of the car, the car squealing that Sarah's hates, and it cuts to Honey dancing like the wind. Yeah, I love that. You see him learning the editing that he really is going to use to the great effect in in The Graduate. And and kind of picking this editor that is going to be his ally the entire time. I mean, when they kicked him out of the edit, which is kind of what happened uh, at the studio at this point, they kicked him out of the edit, and his editor was the one that would – every night 
play the reels, the 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 sound mix reels for him to hear because it's a complicated movie. They you know the first time they're really ever doing overlapping dialogue. Everyone told Mike Nichols you could never do overlapping dialogue, and he figured out this way you could just you know put the tracks like that so it because this is a play that needs it. So this is like this relationship that he has with the editor here goes on for a good way. Can I play my favorite bit of overlapping dialogue? Yeah, this is actually right at the end where uh, Richard Burton is reading bits of. A Latin mass over mm. Elizabeth Taylor. Oh God, that's just so great. I want a child. On principle. I, I want a child. I want a baby. And of course, his perfection could not last. Not with George. Not with George around. There, you see, I knew she'd shift. Be still. Sorry, mother. Can't you be still? Dominus Vibis. Not with George around. A drowning man takes down those nearest, and he tried. And oh, God, how I fought him. God, how I fought him. The one thing, the one thing I tried to carry pure Libre and unscathed in the sewer of our marriage to the sick nights and the pathetic, stupid days to the derision and the laughter, oh, God, the laughter. One failure after another, each attempt more numbing, more sickening than the one before. I, I mean, that is an exorcism. Oh, it's it. that scene is uh, amazing. So well done. Yeah, and it's an exorcism. They're about to exorcise this yeah, spirit they're... that's been in their relationship. He he stages it like an exorcism. And then I looked up later, and that's when I actually realized that that section is called exorcism in the play. But it's just so fantastically done. I don't know if we'd even had that many exorcism movies up until... I mean, The Exorcist yeah. hasn't come out yet. No. All right, so Amy, you always bring to me... Um, things to torture me. And this week I brought something to torture you. What? This is Benny Hill's version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm home, honey. Oh, shit, dick. <laughs> Guess what? That doctor insisted on giving me a complete examination. I had to take all of my clothes off. Can you imagine that? Do you mind? I'm eating. That doctor told me I have the most perfect body he's ever seen. Didn't he say anything about that big, fat, ugly bum of yours? No, he never even mentioned your name. (laughs) So there you go, some Benny Hill for you. And by the way, that's even a literary joke there because they never uh, (laughs) never mention Nick's name, right, in the actual play. Uh, and so I think that was a little call back, even though it was like a double, a double joke because it was also <laughs> calling him an ass. I guess the question remains, is there a Simpsons? Is there ever, man? Okay. So there is the biggest, giganticest clip from the Simpsons. This is from uh, the episode called Heartbreak Hotel. I actually cut it down, Okay. Uh, but there's like three minutes of this. And what happens in uh, Heartbreak Hotel is that... Homer and Marge are trying to be contestants on a reality show called uh, The Amazing Place. And Homer screws it up. They have to go back to their videotaped hotel room. They have this fight. This scene is in black and white. It is done with the kind of shifting focus, a a bad, very exaggerated version of the shifting focus that you actually see Mike Nichols do here. And the voice you hear of one of the men in the couple who enters the room as they're fighting is actually George Siegel. You were this close to winning the three-legged chase. You were right in there, Nick. Right at the meat of things. There's no limit to you, is there? And how would you have played the three-legged chase? Why don't I show you? Don't encourage her. Encourage me. 
Inside, outside, inside, outside, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out! You can sit around with the minibar gin running out of your mouth. You can tear me apart like the box the shower cap came in. That's perfectly okay. That's all right. You can stand it. I cannot stand it! You can stand it! You marry me for it! Our son is dead. No, he isn't! We have no son! Yes, we do! Oh, yeah, Bart. <laughs> that is amazing. I think that's my favorite uh, clip that we've had of The Simpsons. That's intense. Yeah. That whole clip opens with Marge going, what a dump. Oh, I love it. Well, Amy, uh, I guess the question now is, does this film belong on the list? Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, that's that doesn't seem enthusiastic to me. It's 67 on the list. I mean, it, clearly more than The Graduate for you. Yeah, I like this film more than The Graduate. Uh, it's probably the best Elizabeth Taylor we could have on the list. I, right. I like representing her. You know, it's it. this is a movie that in the year 2025, I would mm-hmm. maybe have a harder time arguing for. Maybe 2040, I'd be like, oh, okay, we're fine. But I do really like this movie, and sure, why not? Let's have it on there. Um, all right, well, I'll, I'll be a little bit more enthusiastic about it. I really love this movie, but I think the reason why it would exist on a list in 2025 is because I've not seen a movie like this. This is a rare film. I don't know if we'll ever see a film like this again. I think we see a lot of, you know, like we talked about with our guests today, like, you know, people that are inspired by this. You know, and so I think there's something important there. I think you hear this term like, oh, it's very who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. But I've now seeing this after seeing all of those, it's not because this is the best version of it. Like a lot of the times I'll say like, oh, well, but we've trumped it. Like we've done it better, you know. Um, this, I don't think we've trumped. Yeah. That's my opinion of it so far. And I mean, Brad and Angelina broke up before they could really make a good film. I know, did. I know, I know. But we still have Geely uh, with uh, Ben <laughs> Affleck and uh, J-Lo. Um, God, who is a couple today who could actually pull this off? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I would still love to have seen that Mike Nichols and Lane May play. Um, 67 feels, I'm going to say it feels a little bit right. I would probably move it up a little bit more. I put it into the 50s. And I like it more than, ooh, do I like it more than The Graduate? Huh. I don't know. I don't know. If I made an opinion right now, it would be too quick for me to judge. I do. All right. I know you do. (laughs) All right, Amy. So next week, we are flipping the script. Um, I know that some of you thought that we would be doing uh, Bringing Up Baby. But we want to celebrate the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So we are going to look at Pulp Fiction which is a recent addition to this list. Uh, have you ever seen Pulp Fiction, Amy? Ever heard of it? No. What is it? I don't know. It would be a first time for me, too. This would be really interesting to figure out what this movie is about. I've heard a lot about this. I've never heard of Quentin it. Quentin Tarantino, excited. a very Italian director. Quentin Can't wait what? to. He's a very Italian guy, Quentin Tarantino. And, uh, you know, he's got a very interesting aesthetic. Uh, I'm very, very curious. You know, I've heard that there's this mystery suitcase in the film. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. Maybe we should ask people what's in it. Oh, I have a great answer to that when we come next week. I would like to reveal it to you. <laughs> I, I really do. All right, so uh, you can call us on the unspooled voicemail line. That is at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And make sure you visit us online at our amazing T-shirt shop at tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. You can even get yourself a Hannibal Lecter is a zaddy shirt. I love lepers. Uh, there are some great, great things there, and they're always on sale. So head over to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. And Amy, we will see you next week for a movie that stars yet another honey 
but this one is a honey bunny. Uh, not just a little honey. hopping honey bunny. Let's yeah, say. there we go. All right, so uh, and there's a dance sequence in it too. Oh man, so much good stuff. All right, see you next week for Pulp Fiction. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.